Well, first off, I'm going to have to ask your patience and forgiveness because I am not Brady Boyd and I am not Tom Davis, and I don't like public speaking. (laughs) Uh, If I could sit with you for a couple of hours one-on-one across from the table and share stories about our families and children and hard times that we've been through together, and I could hold your hand and we could cry together for a while, then we'd do just fine. But most of the time, I'd rather swallow a handful of tacks than I would stand up and speak in front of a group of people. So that's my way of telling you I have to use notes. My first time in Darfur, Sudan, a small group of us Kawaijas gathered around a gnarled old man, loosely bound in leather skin that was far too large for his emaciated body. We had asked him intimately personal questions, deeply painful questions about his life in the dead zone of genocide. After several hours of this, we finally ran out of the will to know anymore. Our minds reeled frantically for a way to assimilate his story into our lives. Then he pierced our hearts. His leather lips barely moved as he said, you've asked me many questions. May I ask you just one? It seemed fair enough. Although his body bore witness to both age and abuse, he spoke with the dignity and composure of an Indian chief. My parents, he said, were killed because they would not deny Christ. I've lost my brothers, sisters, and children because of this faith. My wife and I survive alone. So many losses. I've heard that America is filled with many, many Christians, and that you too are a people of faith. So can you tell me why your people have sat by watching my people suffer under this persecution for nearly five decades. And now it has spread even to the Muslims in Darfur, not because of their faith, but because of the color of their skin. Yet this is the first time that any American Christian has ever sat with us or even asked about our suffering. A chilly silence broke through the heat of that day, cooling the arrogance of we Americans and freezing our questions. I still, seven years later, shudder with no small dose of grief and shame every time I consider the lost lives of all those wasted years. Why? Why do we sit on the sidelines in padded pews or mega stadium seating, singing hymns and praise choruses, knowing there is a kingdom war just outside our pretty windows? Sometimes the way we Christians do Christianity reminds me of the horror movies that I used to watch when I was a teenager. 
the scarier the better for me back then. I think I loved those movies partly because they were an escape from my real-time worries and partly because already something inside of me knew that in the real world out there, there were much darker, more evil and ominous worries than my self-centered ones that consumed my childish thinking. One of the most daunting movies that I watched during this period of my life was Dawn of the Dead. In this horrible movie, the bodies of the dead could not rest. Instead, just moments after death occurred, a heinous reanimation took place. The corpse would raise up and roam the earth, tearing life and limb from everyone who drew breath. It's easy to see that particular evil and the parallel to Satan roaming our earth today. What might not be quite so easy for us to see is how common a response from the church is represented here too. In the movie, instead of combating evil, most people wanted to barricade themselves in their homes and let the evil roam freely outside as long as they and their families were safe inside. At one point in the movie, a naive man who had just recently been introduced to the undead cries out, Why? Why is this happening? Another man, an old veteran at fighting evil, answered something like, Hell is full. It's overspilling across the earth. Sometimes I feel as though our modern-day church builds her theology directly from those sort of B-rated movies. We seem to be saying, well, hell is flooding across the earth. Bad things happen. I just pray it doesn't get too close to home. I'll stockpile plenty of food, water, and supplies. I'll push a shifferobe across my front door to block out anything bad from getting in. I won't venture out because it's a dangerous place out there. Now contrast that to Jesus' dream of his church in Matthew 16, 18. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, really are. You are Peter, a rock. This is the rock on which I will put my church together. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Our story Our calling, our purpose for being here today reminds me of a tale tucked in the passages of 2 Samuel 23. And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two powerful men of Moab. He also chased a lion into a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he killed the lion. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. I always have to pause here and say, I agree. It would be a whole lot harder to kill a handsome man than an ugly one. (laughs) The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with only a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. 
These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David sat him over his bodyguard. This is our heritage. This is the stock from which we come. Imagine a lion terrorizing an entire village and everyone shutting themselves inside, afraid to even go out to the local well and draw drinking water. Benaiah steps forward and says, enough of this. And he chases after the lion. That the lion thought surely, the lion had run so far away, he thought surely he had won home court advantage by leaping into a pit where Benaiah would be so cornered that he would turn tail and run. But while Benaiah lacked the thick protective hide, the switchblade claws for climbing slippery walls or slaying opponents, he had something the lion didn't count on. He had a love for his God and the people who God loved. And he would risk everything, including his very life, to storm that pit and save those people. And Benaiah didn't even rank among the three most valiant of David's men who did even greater things. These men are the root from which we sprout They're the ones who stomp around in our dreams giving us crazy ideas like flying into lawless lands ravaged by run-amuck warlords and snatching orphans straight from the hands of slave raiders, brothel keepers, and genocidal maniacs. They're the ones who give us dreams that only lion chasers dare to envision. Since my husband is an insulin-dependent diabetic, and is not able to travel to Sudan, for the first several years, I went to Darfur alone. I worked with our first indigenous leader, James Lualatak. And it was there where we had a squad of land on the cusp of the Sahara Desert, but no buildings yet, save one tukul to store food. For weeks or months at a time, I worked in the bush are far up into Darfur by day and slept under the stars with hundreds of orphans by night. Those years are the most beautiful and ominous days and nights of my life. One night I sat up very late because with the sun long down, still the thermometer registered 120 degrees and I just couldn't imagine sleeping. Lualatak had not yet returned from what he called his security rounds. Having no guards and only a thatched fence, which goats, dogs, and hyenas were constantly pushing through, it somehow made Lualatak feel better to survey the outer perimeter of our acreage each night before he lay down. Finally, a breeze brazed the desert floor, and I took it as a sign that sleep might blow my way. I stretched my sweaty body flat upon my cot, hoping to catch the breeze and the sleep that I prayed it carried. It was one of those black nights where the moon hides itself in some unknown place. The stars were brilliant, but from their high tower position offered little visual aid without the moon. I prayed, 
and I studied their pattern until something along a nodding off pattern lulled me into a deeper rest. Just when I was no longer conscious of anything in this world, terrible screams jolted me from my slumber. My first instinct was to clamor for the stick that I kept by my side as I slept. I often relied on this stick to chase away hyenas or other wild things that would break through our fence at night. But as I rose, stick in hand and hoisted high above my head, I heard the screams again. And then I realized I heard no cackling, growling, or tearing of limbs. So it would not be hyenas that I would oppose on this night. As panic threatened to overtake me, I worked to steady myself and discern from where the noise came. The blackness of night pressed in so thickly around me I couldn't see my own stick in my own hands. The troubling noise still came, but it was no longer a scream. It was more like a distant commotion, a rustling in the wind. I stumbled, slowly turning my head this way and that, like a receiver training my ears to find the signal. With my stick raised shoulder level, I ran toward the rustling, prepared to fight off the unknown noisemaker. Less than halfway through the compound, my feet tangled in roots that my eyes couldn't see, and I fell upon my own stick, puncturing my shoulder. Up again, with my stick a bit lower this time, I charged once more, only now I no longer heard even the rustling. I stopped again, working to train my ears to catch the sound, seeking direction. Nothing. Cautiously, I headed into the direction where I sensed the rustling had last come. The night breeze soothed an abrasion on my cheek from the fall, and it carried a chilly silence. I walked into the breeze, afraid of what my feet would next stumble upon, but there was no turning back now. Passing the sprawling mahogany under which Lualatok housed his orphan church, I knew I was approaching the back end of our land. I walked all the way to the dried fence, and I played my hands across it, seeking to find a thin patch where maybe goats had pushed their way through before. I found one and squeezed my body through its opening. Scanning left and right, my eyes caught a flicker straight ahead, Earlier, I'd given Luol a talk, my headlamp, to make his rounds. He was the only one I knew who had any sort of torch. It must be Luol a talk. A glimmer of hope and relief rose in me. I moved toward the light. Luol a talk's stride, being longer than mine, he covered his ground more quickly than me, so we met just shy of the center of the land that stretched between us. Without speaking, we both read the well matched dread in each other's eyes by the light of my headlamp, which he now held in his hands. Both our faces winced at the same time as our ears trained on the whimper we heard. I hooked my arm in the crook of his as we ran towards the painful sound, just a few yards away now. In the dim light of my torch on that moonless night, I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. Shredded piles of rags don't bleat and groan. But then the pile moved, just a hair, and I knew it was a child. 
I knelt down in the dirt beside her, carefully peeling back enough of the bloody cloth clinging to her broken body to find her head. If I'd seen the child in our village before, I couldn't recognize her now with all the lacerations pocking her face. Her little body lay twisted on the desert floor and her right arm had to be broken from the angle at which it protruded. Luala Talk was wailing over me. No, God! No, not another little one! Not again! You must stop this evil! I really mean it, God! You must stop! Where are you? Luala Talk cried out. He couldn't bring himself to touch the broken child. I worked futilely to limit the pain that I inflicted upon her as I pulled her into the nook of my lap. With the small child in my arms, Luala Talk helped me to stand, and he put his arms around me, steadying me as we walked back to my cot. I had no medical training to interpret what I saw, but from the way her legs flayed, I feared our little angel's hips had been broken during the brutal rape. Luala Tak brought me a dirty bucket of water, the best he could find, and I did the best I could do to gently wash Angel as she passed in and out of consciousness. It wasn't until the morning light that I saw the large chunk torn from her outer thigh. That explained why she was out so late to begin with. She had probably been forced out to find food and water some days before and had been bitten by some sort of wild beast and then wasn't able to make it home, unless, of course, she was an orphan who had no home to return to anyway. I gave Luala Talk some of my broad-spectrum antibiotics to give to our angel. I brought them from the United States, the land flowing with milk, honey, air conditioning, and medicine. Lavalatak went to the commissioner seeking vengeance for the rape and begging for help to help us find some rabies vaccine, which we feared she would develop from the bite. Sudanese-style vengeance came quickly to the Muslim man believed to have committed the rape. The cry for rabies vaccine fell flat upon the deaf ears of a blind world. Angel's fever soared to 106, and in the days to follow, she died. I can't really say from what. I can say why. The why is because she lived in a lawless land of poverty, slavery, and genocide, which too much of the world doesn't even want to consider. But we, brothers and sisters, are from the root of lion chasers who are called to leap into that pit and slay the beast who prey upon these innocent children. Sometimes the beast we chase are malaria, dysentery, cholera, Kala Azar, rabies and meningitis. Other times they are two young pregnancies, rape trauma, slave raiders, hyenas, or two-legged beasts who will tear apart limb by limb as surely as any wild or feral thing. 
These are beasts that we can defeat. But make no mistake, this is war. This is kingdom war. And victory will not come without valiant men and women jumping into the pit and wielding their spears against our adversary. The one orchestrating all the beasts that we chase. In this very room today, God has provided through you not just one spear, but at least three. In your first hand, he's given you the spear of training and education. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search them out. God has granted you the glory of kings through the gifts of books, the internet, and formal education. Honed well, these tools provide miraculous insight into many of the mysteries hidden deep behind the veil of evil that we lift. Used well, our education is a ferocious weapon against the beast we face. The willingness to learn from the wisdom and holiness that suffering has given to those whom we go to serve. Witnessing, and I don't mean going to them to preach. I mean us serving as a witness of what they've endured. Witnessing, honoring, simply sitting with, soaking up, submitting to, and learning from the wealth that the suffering has taught people like the Sudanese people. The loss, the pain, and darkness will make us mighty warriors indeed, fitting us for battle. Finally, there is the spear which we cannot cling to, carry, or wield, but that only has power when we lay it down. That is the spear of our financial resources. Just as God has given you the glory of kings, he has also given you the treasure of kings. He calls us, equips us, and expects us to chase the lion all the way to the gates of hell and carry on in this same insane spirit of obedience until there are either no more orphans sleeping in trees and barely escaping genocidal maniacs or until he returns, forever locking the gates of hell. And no longer is it bleeding on this earth. After Lualatak and I buried our little angel, we sat in the loose, rocky soil beside her grave, crying and talking a while. He asked me the same question I'd heard him scream when he first found Angel. Where is God? I shared with him the secret that keeps me going when I'm tempted to give way to discouragement. I said, Luala Talk, your question reminds me of what Mother Teresa once said when a reporter asked her, where is your God when a child dies from hunger in the streets of Calcutta? Mother Teresa said, 
God is with her. The question is, where are you? James, I said, God is here. And you are here with the children too. We just need others to join us. In the horror movies that I watched as a teenager, the dead guys were the evil ones. But to me, as an adult believer, the scariest thing is to face when we as Christians act like the zombies, lifeless beings with no purpose, aimlessly drifting from one meal to the next. That was a big part of my motivation in writing my book, Passport Through Darkness, as I struggled with not only the evil of genocide and human trafficking, but also with the suffering of my precious husband that he endured when I drug his heart into hell, where it shared every pain and evil, every fear with me. But his health had held his body some 10,000 miles away. I could clearly see how Satan ravaged my husband and so many others who had suffered. But it wasn't until I faced the pain, the sin, the shame that shrouded my own life could I begin to realize how the darkness blinded me from the beauty that God dreamed of for my life. So I wrote many of the intimate moments of my journey to encourage you to hear and dance your life to the beautiful song that our father sang as he knit you in your mother's womb. I pray Passport Through Darkness not only helps Makeway Partners to save more babies from genocide and slave raiders, but that it also helps you to discover and live the unique dream our Father has just for you. I hear his voice rising above the roar of our busy American dream. Pick up your spear and follow me. I sang a special song for you as I knit you in your mother's womb. It's like no other song. Hear my voice, he says. I have a dream for your life. And I know where there are some scared little orphans who desperately need your help. Wow, that was amazing. As you were talking, and um, I was reminded of that old adage that in the face of evil, we do often say, God, why don't you do something? To which he says, I did. I made you. And that's why we're here. As I was in the Word this morning on the way uh, to come to this conference, I was asking the Lord to do a great thing today in all of our lives for His glory. And He took me to Psalm 94, 
where I'm paraphrasing a little, please forgive, the words seemed so apropos. How long will those who crush and oppress and slay the widow and the alien and the fatherless and the vulnerable, how long will they be jubilant? They say the God of Jacob pays no heed. Does he who made the ear not hear? He who formed the eye not see? And then the word says, as Kimberly just described, who will rise up for me against this wickedness? Who will take a stand against the evil doing? And by his grace and with his love, the answer is we will. We will. We're going to take a break. Let you have a moment, some time with the Lord. And then we're going to come back and we're going to have another great speaker. Thank you for being with us at the Life and Justice Conference. <laughs> 